This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. All right, welcome back to Transparency. We've got Jamie uh, with us today. Jamie, we know from, uh, from Twitter very well. Uh, he's a, an American trans man. Um, uh, just turned 25, happy birthday. Thank you. Um, and he's going to be telling his, uh, his, uh, his experience of dysphoria um, and, uh, and, and generally uh, uh, trans experience. Um, he's got an interesting um, uh, addition to add to all of that because uh, Jimmy has cerebral palsy. Um, and so we're going to kind of go into uh, how that kind of, yeah, correlates with the, with the gender dysphoria or how, yeah, just a, um, yeah, a very unique and uh, uh, yeah, important perspective to, to shine in here. So welcome, Jamie. Thank you so much for having me. So you want to just uh, start at the beginning, like, um, you know, as a kid, think how things were for you. I know, obviously, with with the, the cerebral palsy, you had a very uh, you, you had a, a very tough childhood um, that. Um, uh, well, anyway, I'll just let you go <laughs> as you tell. Yeah. Um, so cerebral palsy, for those who don't know what it is, it's basically uh, brain damage at birth. And I was born at 25 weeks. Uh, gestation. So I was like very, very early, one pound, eight ounces. And I was also a twin. And so we were given a 50-50 chance at life or death. My parents were basically told, your children need names for the death certificates because we don't think that they're going to make it. And so we were we were put into the NICU and it was just a sort of a game of wait and see, you know, am I going to live or am I going to die? And we lived. And within 72 hours, they had done a a brain scan and seen that there was hemorrhaging and diagnosed me with cerebral palsy. And basically what CP is, is um, portions of the brain are damaged via either hemorrhaging or early birth, sometimes a combination of the two. And it affects everybody differently, but it mainly affects my legs and a little bit in my hands, but mostly my legs. So I walk a little bit weird, but cognitively, I'm all there, which considering the severity of my brain damage uh, is really, really like miraculous. It's, it's amazing. Um, there's four different grades of hemorrhaging and grades one and two are considered mild to moderate and grades three and four are considered severe. And I had grade three hemorrhaging. So the doctors were like, we don't know what your cognitive ability is going to be like. You know, you, you could be, you know, cognitively not, not functioning, or you could be totally fine. We really don't know. So my childhood was as normal as it could be, I think, under the circumstances. But it was also really, really different because I was the only disabled kid in the family. So, you know, it was physical therapy and, and early intervention and surgeries and medication and things that no other kid was dealing with at the time. I'm really lucky to be sitting in front of you all today. It's, it's just amazing. So I hope that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's, uh, that, yeah, that is incredible. Um, your, so your brother wasn't impacted at all? Your twin brother? No. He has no cerebral palsy at all, which for multiples of that 
you know, early birth. I've read a lot of medical papers and typically when one twin has cerebral palsy or some other disability, the other twin has some form of it as well, but he doesn't have anything really wrong with him. So, okay. It's, so you, um, what was your teenagehood like? I mean, after obviously you had a very uh, medicalized early, early life, what did that look like in, in your childhood when you were, or in your teenagehood when you were kind of more, you know, maybe more, more cognitively aware of, of your unique circumstances? Well, it's, it's interesting because I started uh, puberty earlier than my brothers and sisters and certainly earlier than anybody that I knew. I started at around 10, which that doesn't quite meet the criteria for precocious puberty, but it's early. And with, by the time I was 12, I was like fully developed. So I, I went through puberty very, very quickly. And then my teenage years from 13 to about 18 were just absolute hell absolute hell really really horrible um I, I i had this sense from the time i was a young kid that i had been born in the wrong body and i literally used that phrase you know i, I went to my parents when i was like six uh, as early as six years old i can remember going to them and saying mom and dad i'm in the wrong body because i was disabled and i was really struggling with it and once I hit puberty and started going through all the things that teenage girls go through, that just got worse because like I was in normal classes. I was in advanced like honors classes, but socially speaking, I, I struggled to make friends. And it wasn't because I couldn't socialize. It was because nobody knew what to do with me. And I was 13 or 14 looking at the rest of my life and thinking, you know, I, I want a family someday. I want somebody to love me someday. I want a, a full, happy life. And how am I going to have that if I have this disability? It was a very, for, for a teenage kid to be going through that is really difficult because your brain isn't fully developed. Your emotions are all over the place. You've got hormones flooding your system and you're going through this really intense psychological experience. And I started, um, self-harming at 13 started cutting it at 13 and then 14 i developed bulimia and then by the time i was 16 i was recognizing that i was gay and then i came out as gay at 17 and it just was really really difficult um really difficult i was i, I threatened my parents with suicide at least 10 times comfortably saying to them i i don't want to live like this I don't know what I'm going to do with my life and you sitting there telling me oh it's all going to be okay like when I went to my parents and said to them you don't understand what I'm dealing with I wasn't going to them as your typical moody teenager I was going to them from a place of you literally don't understand you can't understand and it was it was very difficult did you um did you talk to them about the, your experience of gender dysphoria as well? Was that something you were able to articulate to them? Uh, at, at the time, I really didn't. I, I say this phrase often when I'm trying to explain what my teenage years were like. Um, and, I, and I really mean it in the sense that there was no room in my life for me to even begin contemplating that I was gender dysphoric. I knew as soon as I hit puberty that something was terribly, terribly wrong. I knew, but I didn't know 
what it was. And I just figured I'll grow out of it. That was always my thing. My, my thought process was I'll grow out of it. And then being gay, it was like, oh, well, I'm butch, like very obviously butch. And so that's probably what this is. I had spoken to other butch women and they were like, yeah, I went through that period, but I got out of it fine and you'll be fine. And I just figured I just need to go out and be a butch woman and I'll settle into myself. And actually it was going out and being a butch woman that made me realize, oh God, this is not, this is not working. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really, it was devastating for me because I wanted so much for that to fit, for that to work. And then when I realized as a young adult, 19, by the time I was 19, I, I figured out this butch thing isn't, isn't doing it for me. I need something more to alleviate what by then had become crippling uh, gender dysphoria. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a relatively slow process. I, I wouldn't say that I had childhood onset GD, um, but I wouldn't say that I had adolescent onset either. I think it was just a gradual coming to understand that this is what gender dysphoria is for me type thing. Well, what is it about the you know the 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 butch thing that that didn't work for you? Like what 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 what, what did it not? I don't know how to articulate that exactly, but what did it not provide you? See, I I went into it thinking, oh, you know, I'm struggling with this butch thing because I can't accept the fact that I'm a homosexual. I figured that if I just gave myself enough time, I would you know, become comfortable with being gay and become proud of being gay and like settle into it. And I started dating a woman uh, when I was 18 who she, I won't say that she wasn't supportive because I think she was as supportive as she could be for what she understood and for what I was willing to share with her. But I recognized quite quickly that sexually, even though I am homosexual exclusively, I, I couldn't handle being the woman in the relationship, if that makes sense to you. Like for whatever reason, when we would walk down the street together and people recognized that we were a gay couple, I had no problem with them recognizing that she was on my arm, but I had a problem with them recognizing me as a woman. And that was where I was kind of like, I, I could be butch, you know, but I really am not comfortable. I'm not comfortable with my female name. I'm not comfortable with, for example, my breasts. I'm not comfortable with my voice, my secondary sex characteristics. And so I recognized, I, I had spoken to other butches, you know, more deeply as I gained more and more gay friends. And I said, you know, is this something that you have ever thought about? Like, did you ever want to be a man? And I just broached it to them as a, you know, I'm curious, answer the question type thing. Cause I didn't want them to associate it with what I was thinking and feeling. And they were like, no, I would never want to be a man. Why would you, why would you ask me that question? Like very, very not willing to even engage with the concept. And that was when I realized, oh, their experience of it is really different than mine. And I, this is, this is outside of the realm of, 
of butch lesbianism, at least in my view. It's yeah, it's pos- it's possible that's that's the correct reading. I mean, I think it's I think there's an, another possible explanations explanations for how they responded to. I mean, I think a lot of butch women feel a lot of pressure to transition. Mm-hmm. Um, even if they have, and, and some of them, even if they have quite severe gender dysphoria, I mean, we've heard the term like stone butches and, mm-hmm. um, I think there are butch lesbians that have extreme gender dysphoria and figure out how to, how to manage it. Um, but there's so much pressure on butch women to, to transition that, that, that might've been what that resistance and that defensiveness was about is, is they might've been reading it as, um, they might've been reading it as well, you're considering transitioning and, and they feel kind of defensive about their, um, their community shrinking, or it might be just because they're wanting to block that out because they do feel so much pressure to, to transition. Yeah. I, I got the sense as well that um, when I stepped into uh, lesbian spaces and particularly butch spaces, I felt like I owed the other butch women something, that it wasn't enough for me to just be butch and and live that way. I felt like I had to be, for example, a feminist. There was real pressure on me from gay people, especially gay women, to embrace feminism. And I really didn't connect with it at all. I didn't, I had no problem with it, obviously, but I just never saw my experience of being female as central to my to my identity, as it were. I, I didn't think about it. I didn't particularly like it. And I didn't understand why it wasn't enough for me to just be a butch dyke, you know? I'm already meeting the minimum requirement, if you, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> why, why do I have to do, you know, the extra stuff? But there, there was a real sense for a very long time, up until about uh, 21, 22, that I just needed to keep my mouth shut and do what I was expected to do as a butch woman. And I felt like I was failing as a butch woman. And I didn't want, I didn't want the women around me to think that I had any problem with being gay or being butch because I don't. There's so many experiences down the, down the road where it's like, so, so first the disability other, othered you from your peers and then the lesbianism othered you from further from your peers. And then, and then you, you, you find the butch lesbian community and then you're othered by not being, being a feminist. That's yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've heard that from a number of people that they felt like, um, even though they met all that, you know, the criteria for being butch, but they didn't, there were aspects of the, like the community dynamics that they felt alienated by. And one of the criticisms I've, I've heard quite a bit is that with, you know, in the butch femme scene, there's, there's sort of rules of engagement. I mean, there's some that really mm-hmm. expect, um, almost sort of like a 1950s style dating rituals. And, and um, so some people feel quite limited or they feel like, well, you're not butch enough or you're not femme enough. And it, so it's, it's unfortunate that we have these sort of these community rules that, um, that excludes people and alienates people from, from the experience. Yeah, I, I, I never felt like that, to be honest. I really love the butch femme dynamic, I, it's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful expression of, of female homosexuality. And it really meant a lot to me as a young person. And it still very much does. I mean, I still use the word butch to describe myself, you know, and people have gotten mad at me about it. You can't use the word butch if you're transitioning. And it's like, well, I am a butch. 
no matter what I do to my body or what name I go by or how I live my life, I am a butch. You know, we, we know that sex cannot be changed. And so under that particular criterion, my butchness didn't go away just because I decided to socially and legally transition. And I really think that it's important to hammer that point home because as soon as I decided that I wanted to transition, the butch women in my life and the gay women in my life, you know, by and large, basically said, get out. We don't, we don't want you. If you're going to be a man, you're going to go away from gay spaces. And that was really, really hard for me because I, I am gay. I, I live my life that way. And I didn't understand the feeling of betrayal that I was reading from these, from these gay people. And it still really bothers me. So. When was that? Um, I would say I was, I was 22 when I started my social transition. So um, 2019. Okay. Yeah. I think that's probably coincides with the time that the, that the, the um, the lesbian community was kind of becoming aware of the what they call the disappearing butch now, so yes. that could have influenced the, yes. the the hostility. Yeah, it's possible. Um, I I just I remember feeling really bad about it. I was like, gosh, you know, my life would be so much easier if I could just keep my mouth shut. <laughs> but I I couldn't at that point. It was just not feasible. Yeah, that dynamic between the lesbian community and um, and trans men i mean I, I remember that dynamic even 15 years ago that there were some that were really even then feeling the loss of butches from the community and um butches feeling betrayed and femmes feeling like who am i going to date if all these butches end up um transitioning and and so there were even 15 years ago there were there were spaces in which trans men and lesbians were still socializing and then some some spaces that were um that excluded trans men and so yeah it's interesting to hear that that um that dynamic is still still alive and well and pro probably even more intensified now that so many so many years have passed and so many more people have transitioned oh my gosh yeah i i've gotten some really not kind um messages from from gay women who are basically like you're betraying your sex, you're betraying your lesbian sisters, you know, just stuff that it, it's never enough for them to say that they just disagree with the choice that I've made. They got to make it personal. And I don't understand that. I remember when I announced that I was going to start hormones. I mean, I didn't even have it all figured out yet. I mean, I didn't, it's not that I necessarily thought, well, I'm going to be a man. I live my life as a man. And I had no sense of sort of where I would end up and what it would mean. I just, I just decided to, to start taking testosterone. But as soon as I announced that um, there, yeah, I was on, you know, some community forums and stuff and women were saying, no, like we don't want you on the community forum anymore. If, it, if um, you're going to do this and, I wasn't necessarily in my mind ready or thinking that I was going to, you know, leave the lesbian community. For me, it was just as simple as I don't, uh, my dysphoria is bad and I want to, you know, take hormones to see if that helps. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it was, it was really the lesbians that decided for me that I didn't belong in the lesbian community anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, 
that was my experience exactly that everybody was and even now people are still saying to me well you're no longer a lesbian now they now under the guise of my transition in order to be affirming as it were they tell me that I'm just a straight man and I I I despise that label I I really don't I, I don't like the erasure because at our core you know we are female homosexuals female bisexuals that there should be nothing wrong with us stating objective facts about our conditions and how we experience them and this idea that i'm just supposed to be straight now when i've been gay from the time i was 17 yeah it just i i i absolutely reject it <laughs> where are you getting that from that you that you must identify as a straight man is that mostly from the trans activist sphere or it's entirely from the trans activists, entirely. Um, I, I joined a support group for about six months early on in my social transition because uh, we live in a really rural area. And so we're like 30 minutes from the largest city in one direction and then like two hours from the largest city in another direction. So there's, we're in the boonies. There's like, there's nobody out here. And I, I was feeling really isolated and really alone. And I just wanted to be able to talk about my dysphoria and not have to worry about being like, oh, I use this name and these pronouns and this is what I'm doing. I really needed help. And my wife found a support group in our you know, closest city and basically said, you're going to this <laughs> because you need to be around people that understand what you're dealing with. And I went and I stayed for like I said, six months and made friends with people. And it was, it was a huge group of, of trans people, parents, um, so-called trans kids, everybody, everybody was, was involved. And I really learned a lot from that experience. But as soon as I, as soon as I turned to them and went like, yeah, she's my wife and we're a lesbian couple. They're like, no, 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 no. You're a straight man. You're just dealing with internalized transphobia and it's perfectly okay to be a straight man. And I'm like, no, no, that's ridiculous. Yeah. The, it's amazing. The pressures that we get from, from others, like it's, it's not as simple as, you know, we declare because in terms of like how we think of the trans narrative now it, it's um, what people expect is we declare an identity and we push that onto the world. But mm. I mean, the reality is we get, we get a lot of pressure from a lot of different places about you can't do this. You must do this. You have to behave this way. You must identify this way. And we're just trying to find out like, where do I fit and where do I land in all of this? And, and how do I navigate all of this? So it's confusing though, when on one hand we have, you know, when we, when we decide and when we declare that we have dysphoria and lesbians say, well, then you're not one of us, but then we get lesbian feminists coming to us like on Twitter and stuff saying, you're not a man. You're, you know, stop wearing man face. You're, you're actually a woman. It's like, well, you're the one that told me that I didn't belong in, in women's spaces mm -hmm. and lesbian spaces. Mm -hmm. And now you're, now you're, you know, coming after me saying that, how dare you yeah. occupy <laughs> male space? It's like, well, that's, it's it's a confu it's confusing, right? To just be pulled in so many different directions by other people telling us who we are and where we belong. Yeah, it, it's definitely confusing, and especially you know, a lot of the young people that I interacted with in that support group, they went into their transitions with this idea: that transition is 
you know, breaking the binary or queering gender, you know, queer theory type stuff. And I really didn't do that. I, I went into it with, I have a horrible sex dysphoria and I'd like to fix it and I'd like to get on with my life and I don't want to subscribe to these queer theory ideas and I don't want to reject everything that I know to be objectively true and when you're when you're coming at it from a I'm a normal I, I say normal but you you know what I mean I'm a normal person dealing with a very abnormal issue and I just would like to fix it and move on and everybody around you is sort of well step outside the step outside the boundaries of gender like you know that that very odd ideology it's like people on the street don't understand what queer theory is they know it because they don't like it when they recognize it but if you try to have these very philosophical ideological conversations with the average person they're not going to understand you and I, I i remember getting into arguments with people and being like can you talk like somebody that you know just just give me a basic understanding of what you're dealing with and, and they couldn't they were like trapped in this language and this way of thinking and i i ended up walking away from that group because um, what it came down to was that my parents were struggling with my transition and i and i knew that they would i was not expecting them to be super affirming i basically said to them you know i i get that you are not fans of this concept but i need you to just walk with me for a little while and we can figure this out together but this is what I need to do to live. And my parents were not happy about it, but they didn't reject me, you know, they were, they were struggling. And I, I went to these people in the support group and I said, my parents are really struggling and I want to help them. You know, what can I say to them to like ease their mind a little bit? And they were like, well, your parents are transphobic. Just walk away from them. And I'm like, no. I'm walking away from you, you know, if you want me to walk away from my family, it's not happening. <laughs> Have a nice life. <laughs> so that's really the difference, isn't it, between living in reality, you know, with a condition versus the queer theory thing that just teaches you to to walk away from family, right? To sever those mm -hmm. relationships and to interpret everything as transphobia and unworkable. And they've completely upended it too. I I, I recently replied to something Chase Strangio said, basically, you know, that that you know that the transition isn't a, you know, that being trans or having gender dysphoria isn't a beautiful, a magical thing. You know, it's it's something that we, you know, have to treat in some way. And it those those interventions can be quite, you know, grisly. And uh, I got all these responses um, from the from the trans brigade basically saying, you know, that's not everybody's experience if you didn't have so much, you know. Uh, self-hatred about be, being trans or your transness, you wouldn't even have dysphoria. So they've, they've basically upended the entire concept where it's like you're, you're trans and therefore when the world doesn't accept you, that's dysphoria. That's, that's how they, that's how they uh, kind of frame it also completely upended. Yeah. They, um, they see, they see, dis, they see gender dysphoria as the, as how do I put it? Like if we think of, of like a, chronological order of things that can happen to us they put gender dysphoria at the end as an optional piece that some mm -hmm. people feel mm -hmm. as a result of discrimination that if that if it weren't for transphobia that we wouldn't ever feel gender dysphoria because that they just see that as the distress 
of not being accepted in society. Whereas in reality, gender dysphoria for a lot of us is at the front end. That is the condition that we have and everything follows that condition. So it's completely interesting how how the queer theory activists have completely changed the order of, of these events and misrepresent what gender dysphoria is. And, and isn't, it, is, isn't it interesting, you know, dysphoria in, in their minds is optional, but medicalization of that dysphoria is not. <laughs> like, <laughs> that doesn't yeah. make sense to me. <laughs> like, I, I, was, I was, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go, go on, go on. I was preparing some notes uh, for this interview because I always like to be well prepared. And I decided to actually look up the, the DSM-5 uh, gender dysphoria criteria for adults just to see, you know, is there anything in there about medicalization? There's nothing in there about medicalization. Like there's nothing in the criteria that says that you have to medicalize. And yet these people are like, why haven't you medicalized yet? aren't you aren't you like really trans if you were really trans you would you would do this 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 and this and why don't you want to do informed consent people have like lost their minds over somebody like me saying you know i don't think this is the best option for somebody like me health-wise they, they look at me and they're you, you can see it on their faces their brains like melt. <laughs> it's it's interesting. It's something that I never thought I would experience because I, I came to understand gender dysphoria as, and even trans identity to some degree, as something that if you say you have it, you have it, and nobody can invalidate you. Mm-hmm. And then when I actually had the experience of saying, well, I have severe gender dysphoria, and I've, you know, done transition to the degree that I can do it currently, but the medical piece doesn't really make sense for me with all my health issues. They were like, well, you're not really trans then. And I'm like, well, hold on a minute. According to your criteria, I am really trans because I say that I am. (laughs) It's it's inconsistent as an ideology. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. Yeah, it is. It is also amazing that that. Well, well, that's something that scares me quite a bit with with how that that logic works. Is if you say you trans, then you need to transition. And so a lot of a lot of young people seem to talk about transition as like something they have to do in order to maintain their their inclusion in the in the trans identity. It's like they want the identity, and then once they have it, they're pressured into transition. And so it's just it's um yeah a strange strange dynamic there. Um, there's so, so much I, what, go on Aaron oh yeah uh, I mean there's so much um it's interesting you know there's so much pressure in crying out of don't pathologize transness right that it's not an illness don't pathologize mm-hmm. it um it's just not na- you know natural and magical um but I think it's actually a much healthier way of of looking at it to say look like this because we see gender dysphoria uh, you know across cultures, you know, across political divides, you know, there's, there's liberal people that have gender dysphoria, there's conservative people, like it's lots of different kinds of people experience gender dysphoria because it's a condition, but it's the group think that's caused us so much problems. Like when people are trans in order to identify into a group, as opposed to I'm just trans and I live within my family, within my community, within my own culture. And I want to do I want to, you know, ex- experience gender dysphoria and, and myself in an authentic way, wherever I happen to be, where our relationships are with our family and our, you know, our community of origin and, 
you know, you know what I mean? Rather than feeling like we have to, to uproot ourselves from our, our own culture and our own family of origin in order to be trans. And that's such a backwards and, and destructive way of thinking. Why can't we be trans wherever or have gender dysphoria wherever we are and maintain right. our relationships? Right. And, and gender dysphoria as, a, as an experience, just talking from my own experience, it's incredibly disorienting. It's incredibly, you know, uprooting. I, before gender dysphoria really entered my consciousness, I was a very normal person, you know, got along well with other people, was successful academically, like a very, you, you, you never would have known that I had gender dysphoria if I hadn't said anything. And that was on purpose. I, I kept it to myself for a very long time. But my, my point is that when you recognize it for what it is and the severity of it hits you and you recognize, oh gosh, my body is really a horrible place to be psychologically. And I really do want hormones and surgery. And I really would feel better transitioning to live as close to the opposite sex as I possibly can. You, you start questioning everything you know to be true. I mean, I've spoken to other trans people about this who've said, you know, once I realized that I had dysphoria, I went back through my memories and looked for instances of dysphoria. And I didn't really have to do that. I didn't really have to do that. And I, I didn't really want to do that either because my experience is already so different. My experience is already so other and so individual and so its own thing that taking my dysphoria and putting it under the current affirmation model doesn't make sense. And, and it took me a while to really recognize that the reason so many people are struggling in transition now the reason there are so many detransitioners, for example, is because we're taking individuals with dysphoria, with individual experiences and individual comorbidities and what have you, and we're putting them under the same model of care. And that doesn't work on a broad level. I mean, for somebody like me to go into an endocrinologist and say, hey, can you give me testosterone? There is no research into what synthetic testosterone would do to someone, a female with cerebral palsy. There's nothing. I've looked and looked and looked and looked, and there is nothing. And it's terrifying. And for the people that I interacted with, you know, 19, 20 year old kids who've never had surgery before, except for their transitional surgeries, to look at somebody like me and say, well, just try testosterone. Just go and have surgery. Just go and do the medical piece and you'll be fine. And these people are experts. I, I come from a medical space where my doctors are world-class physicians, like really excellent, careful physicians. And I looked into gender medicine and I realized, oh my gosh, best case scenario, I transition, nothing happens to me. But worst case scenario, I, I could end up dead. Like, I'm not even joking with you right now. It, it, it really scared me. And, and to be dismissed when I brought these concerns up to other trans people as if to say, well, you, you just don't trust the professionals enough. And I, I wanted so many times to turn to them and be like, you're trusting the wrong professionals. Go find people that can actually help you. Why are you like, it, it just never made sense to, to me. To, to put my experience 
as I was saying, into this model that doesn't fit me in the first place. I saw a paper recently, um, and I haven't read the whole thing. I just sort of read the abstract, but there, um, it's a paper about how um, early um, um, surgeries for FDMs leads to eventual, um, in some people, it, eventual dementia. So I think it's because of the, it's, it's basically forcing early menopause onto, mm -hmm. onto young people and, and then um, they think that there's a correlation between between that and and dementia. So it, these interventions do have unexpected impacts um, and and an impact on on the brain. I was going to ask you if you if you were aware of any um, just any potential complications as a result of the cerebral palsy. And it's as you say, it's a, there's so much that's just unknown. So obviously, I don't have access to those original brain scans, so I couldn't tell you. Um, which parts of my brain are damaged. And the, the funny thing about cerebral palsy specifically as the result of brain damage is that even with, um, even with brain scans, like 2018, I think was the earliest year where they've started to map, like observably map the brains of children with cerebral palsy to try and find out which parts of the brain are damaged. They still don't know. So it, from what I understand, um, my, my damage is mainly concerned with the frontal lobes, um, but I don't honestly know. I couldn't tell you. And having that level of severe brain damage, it, it does impact my life. You know, I, I wish it didn't, um, but it does. And not just physically. There's like emotionally, I'm very, very intense. And I think that's probably because of the brain damage. There's, there's other things, you know, not unstable as it were, but, but very, very intense. And we, we just don't know enough about um, cerebral palsy yet to really say this is what would happen. We don't know enough, hell, we, we, we don't know enough about brains of people with gender dysphoria to really say this is what we're looking at. Everything, you know, neuroscience uh, in general is pretty good, but <laughs> But for people with gender dysphoria, those studies are speculative at best and completely off base at worst. We don't know. It's going to take us decades, I think, to really understand how this thing works. And it, with my particular variables, you know, I, I don't really want to take the risk. And I, I thought for a while that I could be the first, you know, and I, I said to myself, oh, you know, my body's strong enough. I'm mentally very tough. I can, I can handle it. You know, if anybody can handle irreversible medical stuff, it's me. <laughs> uh, I've been doing it my whole life, but then I thought about it, really talked to people that I, that I care about. And they basically were like, why does it have to be you? <laughs> why do you have to be the first, you know, why do you have to put yourself on that altar? And so that's sort of the approach that I've taken as of late is I'm just going to wait and see and hope desperately that something can can help me. How have you been managing your your gender dysphoria in the meantime? Uh, well social transition took a huge chunk of the perception piece you know it's not perfect I don't physically pass so you know it's it's I pass about 40 percent of the time wish I passed more, you know, from a distance, you look at me and you're like, oh, that's a dude. And then you get up close and I open my mouth and you're like, oh, that's a chick. <laughs> um, 
so that's not fun. Um, having supportive family really, really helps. Um, the the woman that I married, I, I sat her down, you know, because we started dating before I had socially transitioned. And she knew that I was thinking about transition. And I finally sat her down and was like, so I'm going to transition. And I know this isn't what you signed up for, but, you know, you can leave at any time if you really don't think that you would be comfortable. She looked at me and she was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so obviously it ended up, you know, she's somebody that, that understands that it's not something I have control over. And my family are really, really good. And I legally changed over my documentation. So legally, my name is James and my sex is recorded as male. And, you know, it's not all the way across the board changed because I have no desire to change, for example, my birth certificate. I, I have no desire to change the past um, and I don't see why I should have to. Um, but, you know, I, I, I get weird looks from people in public, but then they just kind of let it go. And then, of course, once I explain, this is why I haven't medicalized. This is why I'm dealing with what I'm dealing with. They're like, oh, that makes sense. And I'm like, yeah. And then we can have a normal conversation and nobody asks questions about it. You know, I, I've had to be open about a lot of things that I didn't want to be open about, especially as a kid. Like being a little disabled kid, people don't talk about it, but it's hard. People come up to you and ask you all sorts of insensitive questions and you just kind of have to sit back and act like it doesn't bother you. And so that's, that's where I learned how to have these difficult conversations is, is from being that kid that was so visibly different all the time. And in some ways, my transition is made easier by the fact that I already am visibly different because all that anxiety about passing, like, yeah, I still get anxious, but then I think about it for more than five seconds and I'm like, well, people are going to look at the chair before they're going to look at the fact that I have tits, you know? that's what they're going to see first and does it really matter and in most cases it hasn't people have been really cool about it so somebody that um you know you value your relationship with your parents and you don't want to dismiss them as transphobes and cut them out uh, what what have conversations with your family kind of looked like on the issue of of your gender dysphoria um my mom knows about it we don't really talk about it just because we, you know, there's other things I'd rather talk to my mom about. Um, she doesn't really, I, I love my mom. She's great. But she doesn't really understand the whole gay thing. And that's okay. And I know that. And that's her issue to work through. And she, she is supportive of me now, obviously, you know. But as far as the gender dysphoria goes, she, she can't, because she can't wrap her mind around the gay thing, the gender dysphoria conversation is really not one that I can have on a, on a really, it's very, like very basic level. But my dad, he and I talk pretty much every day. And he was the first person in my family that I went to. I like called him and I was like sobbing. And I was like, I have to transition because otherwise you're gonna like end up burying me essentially. <laughs> And he was like, what do you mean? What is gender dysphoria? You know, and he, he and I are wired the same way too. So uh, he's very intellectual and I'm very intellectual. He's very data-driven and I know that about him. So part of the reason I started reading so much about gender dysphoria and transsexualism more broadly was not only because I wanted to understand what was happening to me, but because I needed to be able to explain to my father 
what this was and how to treat it and why you treat it with hormones and surgery and what in the brain causes it and the history of it. And um, I, I actually, when I, when I decided to tell my parents that I was going to socially transition, I, I came home for Christmas because I figured I'm not going to do whatever texts, I'm not going to do whatever the phone, this is a conversation that I love them and respect them enough to have it in person. And so, you know, how am I going to prepare? So obviously I did the stereotypical Gen Z thing and I wrote them a letter. It's like 10 pages, you know, um, and I got some books together. Right. But then I wrote a book. I wrote the book on my own transition to explain to them what I was doing. And uh, my dad, he understands it much better now. He's really supportive of me. He wants me to be happy and be healthy and he doesn't agree with it, but I understand why. So it's a very long winded way of saying one parent, I don't really talk with them about it. The other one, we talk about it all the time. <laughs> so. I'm curious that um, the whole, the whole uh, born in the wrong body phrase, because you said you went to your, your, I think your mom when you were six years old and told her that. And I, one of the things that started to kind of uh, the, the, you know, the house of cards to fall around me a few years ago with the whole trans thing is to to kind of put myself in the shoes of somebody who was seriously physically disabled. And then to say that I'm, you know, mm-hmm. you know, that I've got the, the you know, <laughs> my brain's in the wrong body, you know, <laughs> I started to feel really, really ashamed of myself for, you know, thinking that way. And so I'm wondering what that feels like for you, where you like, like, does the born in the wrong body phrasing used by the, you know, the trans narrative, does that, is that really offensive to you? Or does it make sense? Or how do you feel about all that? Okay, so the phrasing, it does not offend me. And actually, most disabled people that you that you meet, I, my whole friend group is pretty much all disabled people. Um, they don't really see their bodies as wrong. They're very, like, proud of their bodies. They're proud of their disabilities. They're disability activists, for God's sake. Like, mm-hmm. it, it's so different from the trans rights activist narrative of born in the wrong body and I had to change my body to do this, this, and this, you know, disabled people are really not like that. And there's a, there's a real sense of, of reclamation with disabled bodies. There's a real sense, especially the more time you spend around disabled people, you learn like, oh, I'm disabled, but I'm still able to do all these things. And my body really isn't wrong. It's society that sees me as wrong. There's a, it's, it's called the social model of disability. And it basically says that we are more disabled by a society that is not built for us than by our bodies and our diagnoses. And trans activists don't have anything like that. The best they can do is, you know, societal systemic transphobia. That's the best trans activists can do, which doesn't even scratch the surface of something like the social model of disability. Um, It it doesn't offend me because that's really how I feel. Um, I'm sure there are other disabled people that feel similarly. What offends me though, and I have to be as honest as I can be. What really offends me is the idea that in order to be legitimately trans, you have to undergo really dangerous medicalization. Because for disabled people as a whole, our medicalization really is life-saving. <laughs> like the, the main medication that I'm on, I don't know how much you've read of my story or... or what you've heard, but the main medication that I'm on <laughs> allows me to produce enough um, enough cerebrospinal fluid so that my body doesn't spasm 
and my brain functions properly. Like it's very advanced medical stuff. And for a trans activist to turn to somebody like me and say, if I don't cut my tits off, you know, my life will be over. That's just beyond insulting, beyond insulting. Because it's like, you have no idea what it actually is to need medical care to save your life. This is elective cosmetic surgery and hormones. And, and it's, it's not to say that it doesn't improve dysphoria at all, because obviously it does. We wouldn't be using it if it didn't do something, right? But to say that it's life-saving, I'm guilty of, of using that phrase to describe my own transition. And I no longer use it because I recognize I made a choice with the information that I had at the time in order to save my own life. But that choice was just a choice, morally neutral, not good, not bad, just a choice. And I hope that answers your question. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So you obviously have a wife. When did, how did, uh, uh, when did you guys get married? Like, how was that, the, the whole, so, so, so you said that you, you, you only broached the transition, but was that before you guys got married or, or after? That was before. Uh, as soon as we started dating, we, we met uh, actually on the internet, <laughs> dating apps for the win. Um, <laughs> but I had put, I had put in my profile, obviously, you know, bringing up the issue of disclosure. Um, I had put in my profile, first line was, I'm disabled, if you got a problem with that, bye. Uh, <laughs> second line was, I'm, I was non-binary at the time, because I figured non-binary was a good in-between space. And, you know, I could be, I could manage my dysphoria without having to transition to this. And I, I put everything up front and center so that anybody reading it would know immediately what they were getting into. And I messaged her and I was not expecting a message back. She was the last person that I messaged and I had promised myself, if I don't get a message back, I'm just gonna give up on the whole dating thing for a while and go be single and live my life. And she messaged me back and we started video chatting and texting and it took us about two months to really start talking to each other. And then we met in person and we've been together ever since. <laughs> So it was pretty, pretty immediate. So she went to, went to been surprised then, you know, I mean, it, if, even though you went from non-binary to, to trans, it was still, it wouldn't have been a complete surprise. Oh no, she, she was fighting with me about it. We spent about a year fighting about it because she said to me, you're miserable. You need to transition. And I'm like, no, I can't transition. I have all these reasons that I can't transition. You know, I was torturing myself about it because I'm really good at that. And uh, she said to me, if you don't get this thing under control, you know, something, something terrible is going to happen to you, to paraphrase what she said to me. And uh, she really cared about me enough to like, look me in the eye and be like, look, you asshole. I don't care what you look like. I don't care what you sound like. I like you, you know, and stop worrying so much about, you know, my changing attraction to you. And she's, she's bisexual as well. And I said to her, you know, I don't want to, I don't want you to feel like you are losing something by me changing my body. Because for her to, her, her family environment and her uh, upbringing was not just evangelical Christian. It was like a cult. Like she actually grew up in a cult. Um, and so it was very, very restrictive 
And for her to recognize that she was bisexual um, was a really, really big deal for her, for her to recognize that she liked women. And I looked at her and I said, sweetheart, if I change my body, there is no going back. I am not going back for any reason ever. So you need to decide what it is that you want in a partner. And I don't want to deprive you of something that you need. Like if you, you know, what if I transition and you find that you actually can't, you know, handle being with a man? What then? Am I going to, am I going to turn to you and say, oops, you know, like I, I just found you and I, I'd like to be with you forever. And I'd like to be careful about how we, how we do this thing. And she was like, just stop thinking so much about it. I'm bisexual, you idiot. And we really, we've had other arguments about it, but what it comes down to is that when we're especially dysphoric, for example, and we don't pass, we get in our own heads about it. And we don't really think about the people around us that love us that don't care about dysphoria, you know, even if they know what it is. And she, she's amazing. She's an amazing human being. She was the person that said to me, you need to transition. She was the person that said to me, go to your parents and tell them that you're transitioning. She helped me pick my name, Jamie, that I go by. Like she, she got my pronouns down like that and never messed them up and like went after anybody that even tried to like, you know, use different ones. She, she just absolutely is by my side a hundred percent. And it's really, it's really emotional for me. Oh. really emotional for me because I didn't I remember being a teenager like I was saying to you guys before thinking nobody is ever going to love me like I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life and realizing like oh I get to do this thing and I get to have somebody that loves me how cool is that like really cool it's, it's just amazing my life now is just unbelievable that's awesome I am curious, you, you were talking about how like um, your, it's important to you obviously to acknowledge your biological sex and that you aren't a straight man. Um, and then also at the same time, you, you're uncomfortable with being perceived to be a woman in a relationship. Have you like, how do you, like how does that work in your, like I can, I can understand it logically, but I'm wondering if like you wanna talk about that. Yeah, um, it took me a really long while to sort of, square the two in my own head um and I realized it really I, I did a thought experiment to myself you know imagined for a minute that I was dating a man and would it bother me if I were dating a man but perceived as a woman and I decided yeah it would still bother me um I, I think that acknowledging my biology is a way of keeping keeping to my roots Acknowledging my biology for me is more about remembering where I come from and seeing myself as a man, you know, my self-perception has no bearing on where I come from. It, it evolved out of that, but it's its own thing, if that makes sense. It, it exists independent of my history, as it were. Hope that answers your like, question. That make, yeah, 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 it does. How do you make sense of your gender dysphoria? I mean, I know that there's a lot of misinformation out of there, uh, out there, and and contradictory studies. So, how have you pieced that together to make sense of what gender dysphoria is? 
Well, I, it really came out of a sense of, um, of desperation because when I first started experiencing gender dysphoria, I thought that I was going insane. I, I thought that I was having delusions or dissociating or, cause I, I have a, a somewhat of a psychology background and I like understanding, you know, different mental disorders. It's fascinating to me. Um, but I, I just figured, oh, I'm schizophrenic or I'm dissociating or I have a mental illness or there's something wrong with me that I feel this way. And I just spent so much time, so many nights thinking to myself, God, what am I going to do? You know, like, even if I never say anything to anybody, what am I going to do about this? And I started Googling and I started reading and I bring up uh, Dr. Ray Blanchard a lot in my writing and in my speaking. And I bring him up because uh, his papers were the thing that showed me that I was not crazy. Like I, I had read a lot of clinicians by that point, trying to understand, okay, what is, what is gender dysphoria and how do we treat it? And why do we treat it that way? And, and this, this medicalization thing didn't just come out of nowhere, right? And how did it come about? And um, his, his papers more than any other clinicians were just, they were the thing that I clung to. The, the way that he writes about what he observes, the way that he writes specifically about homosexual transsexuals, which is what I am. It was like, oh, thank God. Thank God there's, there's an answer. You know, everything that I'm reading is lining up with what I'm experiencing, you know, and I can do something about this. Um, and, and over time, as I read more and more, trying to figure out, okay, I know what gender dysphoria is. Now, how am I going to fix it? I realized, you know, my, my crux of my issue, which is my, my physical body may not be up to it. And uh, so, so conceptualizing my gender dysphoria outside of medicalization was really important as well, because I realized, oh, everybody that I meet, everybody that I talk to, as soon as I say the words gender dysphoria, they're like, we, they, they want to rubber stamp you to transition. And I can't necessarily do that. And so how do I legitimize my own gender dysphoria? Well, I went and I read about transsexualism as it was in the time of Magnus Hirschfeld. You know, I read about the history, the diagnostic criteria. I read everything that I could find. I, I basically <laughs> turned it into a second job, just reading and trying to understand this thing because I was so afraid that I was losing my mind. You know, it, it, like I said before, it's a very disorienting experience. And for somebody that I, I try to be really objective because I have to live in the real world. My, my life as it is necessitates that I am with my feet metaphorically firmly planted. You know, I, I have to do that in order to survive. And so recognizing I have this situation that I don't understand, these feelings that I don't understand, and I have to survive this thing or otherwise it's going to control me and I don't want that. That was kind of how I conceptualized it was. I have to take control of my own life and my own mind. I have to slow down and breathe and keep my wits about me because this is a very intense thing. Very intense. How do you feel about all these bills trying to um, ban uh, so-called conversion therapy on, on trans people, which obviously you, you can't 
um, you know, you, you can't obviously medicalize uh, because of your, your, you know, your medical um, history. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, psychologists, you know, counselors can't actually assist you with gender dysphoria without basically, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, like, like, what, what are the, what are our tools, you know, that, that, uh, that, um, you know, therapists can use to actually help you manage, you know, your, your gender dysphoria cognitively. Um, is that, is that a fireable offense to try? You know, like what, <laughs> what do you think about that? Well, it, I, I think, first of all, we need to define what conversion therapy for trans people actually looks like. Because not only in the language of, of conversion therapy as a, as a practice, but also in its use against gay people, we know exactly what gay conversion therapy looks like. We have history with it. Trans conversion therapy, people have tried to say that it was practiced. It really wasn't. I actually, um, when I was looking for an experience that matched mine, and I was looking for a trans person that I could relate to, I stumbled upon a, a female to male transsexual by the name of Dr. Alan Hart. And he transitioned all the way back in 1918. And at the time, uh, all he needed to do to change his legal documentation was have a hysterectomy. So that, that's what he did. There was no mastectomy. There wasn't, there wasn't even testosterone. Testosterone was synthesized in the 1930s. And by the end of World War II, it was given to people to use, but he couldn't medically transition for like 20 years. And I started looking into his case history and, and what he did to try and manage it at this time where nobody even knew what being gay was, right? And I found that the whole reason that we are so resistant to using therapy to treat gender dysphoria is because way back in 1918, 1920, 1930, the therapeutic techniques that we had at the time did absolutely nothing to treat gender dysphoria. So on, on the subject of conversion therapy, I think until we develop an effective therapy to treat gender dysphoria, we can't have the conversion therapy conversation because the only model that we're seeing is the affirmative one. I mean, it, it would be different if it were 30 years ago you know, and we actually had clinicians that were doing their jobs, you know, no offense to you, Aaron, but it, it just really, really makes me angry because I very easily could have had gay conversion therapy if I wanted it. There were, there were periods of time where being gay was really, really hard for me. And I thought about going and finding a conversion therapist and I'm glad I didn't obviously, but it, it just doesn't apply in the same way to trans people as it does to gay people just doesn't. I'm certainly not aware, like when I was a teenager, um, conversion therapy was still practiced, you know, in, in psychiatric units and stuff. So it, and conversion therapy for gay and lesbian people included things like electroshock therapy, it, you know, and in some cultures they do things like, you know, reparative sexual assault. And so, so there is quite a, you know, a brutal history of conversion therapy for homosexuality. And I'm not aware of any of those techniques being applied to um, gender dysphoria. I don't remember their hearing. In, 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 maybe there are cases, but I don't remember in my almost 50 years hearing about gender dysphoria being treated with electroconvulsive therapy. No, I mean, I... I've looked to find some history just to see what would they do to gender dysphoric people back in the time of say, Alan Hart. And in Alan Hart's case, all they did was like your standard hypnosis, which was the thing at the time, that was it. 
you know, they didn't have anything to even try to convert him with. <laughs> so this idea that there's this malicious conversion therapy, you know, being practiced on trans people, I think there's also a twisting of the idea of conversion therapy by trans activists, which they look at anything other than affirmation as conversion therapy. They look at exploratory therapy as conversion therapy. And I think if we're gonna be, if we're gonna be vigilant about making sure that nobody is converted against their will, be they gay or transsexual or what have you, we need to be really clear about what we mean. What is conversion? What is not conversion? And with the trans rights activists, they're, they're muddying the waters in terms of this idea of what conversion is not. Yeah, when I, when I find, when I try to engage in like what they mean by conversion therapy, <coughs> they, say it, they say trying to make someone cis. They don't, they don't, you know, elaborate any further. There's, you know, they obviously uh, rely heavily on, on, a, on a trans cis dichotomy as if that's a, that's a real thing. And they don't get into like, you know, well, you know, cognitive treatments for gender dysphoria. And then obviously for look, therapeutic model for gender dysphoria, we've got to look at all the various types of gender dysphoria and treat them. And they obviously, you know, so people who are, who are playing the, the you know, or calling making the conversion therapy accusation, they won't even get into the details of what they could be referring to as conversion therapy. They just say, oh, trying to make someone cyst. And then if you want more details, you know, you're a transphobe. So yeah, it's important, I, I, it's impossible to know what they mean. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know how, how conversion therapy laws are, are specifically worded around the world, but I know that our one here in Canada, they, spit, they don't even talk about gender dysphoria. So where does that leave us with the treatment of gender dysphoria? They don't actually mention it. So I kind of wonder, does that mean that we can do talk therapy for gender dysphoria? Because it's not even covered or mentioned in, in our legislation. But the other point I wanted to make, they use the word gender identity, that you're not allowed in therapy <clears throat> to, to change someone's gender identity. But let's talk about what gender identity means, right? It's right. because... My understanding of, of how psychologists, when they when they coined that phrase gender identity, what they meant, like it's, so they mentioned that in the DSM criteria, that when your gender identity doesn't match your sex body, gender identity wasn't meant to be, wasn't meant to um, mean this mysterious gender soul that everybody has. And for some people it doesn't match. What gender identity means is that when we have gender dysphoria, it's quite common to kind of construct an imaginary or inner sense of self that sometimes we keep hidden from other people, or, but when we come out, we're expressing that, right? We're wanting other, other people to see that construct of self that we've created. I mean, was that, was that true in your experience? Like in your imagination, do you kind of imagine yourself as male? Uh, that, that wasn't true in my experience I because my my tendency you know I'm, I'm a writer by trade and, and I have written fiction and so I'm a very imaginative person as it were but I never really imagined myself as male I just know that I am you know I, I recognize biology but my self-perception is such that you know it, it's not it, it doesn't contradict my material reality mm -hmm. if you catch my drift. And as far as gender identity goes, um, I, I read a really amazing book. Um, it's called As Nature Made Him. It's about the David Reimer case. I don't know if you've read it. I haven't read that. I'm familiar with the David Reimer case, though. 
it's an excellent Same. book. You you really should read it. But the the phrase gender identity uh, came from Dr. John Money, who you know obviously did his horrible experiments. But his work was not concerned with dysphoric people. Most people don't understand that. He was working with um, people with uh, disorders of sexual development. And so his use of the phrase gender identity, as he understood it, was we have this person with an ambiguous uh, presentation due to their hormonal or their you know birth situation and their sense of themselves is different than their than their biology but it was a very specific context with very specific implications and from my understanding gender identity was picked up by queer theorists and more broadly applied to gender dysphorics without disorders of sexual development i could be wrong and mm-hmm. um, i'm not sure but it just seems like we can't have a conversation about changing or not changing somebody's gender identity if we don't even know what gender identity is. And gender identity presupposes that you agree with the concept that someone can have a gender identity. Mm-hmm. Like people have told me, well, since you can't medicalize, you're really just transgender, you're not transsexual. And I turn to them and go, well, that supposes that I believe in the idea of gender that I support the idea of gender. Mm-hmm. And I don't. My dysphoria is specifically with my biological sex. And there is a word for that experience. And that word is transsexual. And I won't be forced to use a word which presupposes that gender is a real thing that causes me extreme anguish. Because I could give a flying fig about societal gender norms. Like, I really, I, I really don't care, you know. And Gender identity as a concept has never really made sense to me. I think early on when I was really starting to experience dysphoria and really ashamed of it and really struggling with it, I, I chalked it up to gender identity. Oh, this is how I identify. This is how I identify and trying to legitimize my experience. And then, and then as I matured and my gender dysphoria matured along with me, it became the sense of, oh, I, I can't use that identity label because it it's not real mm-hmm. you know and if I want to be taken seriously even if you know even if somebody you know on the street thinks that I'm completely mentally ill I still want to be treated well and treated with respect and so how can I do that and the first thing that I need to dispense with is this idea that I have some magical fictional gender identity because human beings don't have gender identity. they mm-hmm. have self-perception they have biological sex they have orientation and my reading of you know various clinicians really helped to really cement that for me. They were writing about what they observed in a very non-political, non-emotional way. And so I had to step back and put my emotions to one side and say, what am I really dealing with here? And the whole yeah, the you know, whole issue of gender identity is confusing because you're right, it was, it was um it was a psychologist. I don't think it was actually John Money, I think it was. I think it might have been Stoller that in created, but anyway, who, whoever coined the term gender identity, you're right. It was originally in the context of treating people with intersex conditions because back then they would assign a, they would assign a, a gender or assign a sex um, based on whichever medical procedure they felt would be easiest to perform. And, and they believed that nobody had an innate gender identity, that there was something that could be constructed that if, if you were born male, that you would end up developing 
in most cases, developing a sense of self based on the fact that you were biologically male and vice versa for females, but they didn't feel like that there was any inner mechanism that said, I am male or I am female. And so according to, to them, what they were experimenting with is can we kind of arbitrarily assign a sex to a people with intersex conditions if it's easier to normalize their body in one way or the other? Could we assign a sex to somebody and they would develop normally and, and healthy and, and adapt well to our assignment? Um, and so it's confusing when trans activists use gender identity as, yes, this is a socially constructed concept that we socially constructed gender identity. It's like, well, if you've socially constructed it, um, then why, why, are, why is medicalization necessary? Like it's, exactly. if you can socially exactly. construct it, then you can also socially deconstruct it or change it. Or, yep. and, and that's so completely different from gender dysphoria, a condition which makes you feel like your own sex body is alien it's such a it's so it's such a completely different um set of circumstances from the intersex um experience so it's it's just so confusing right when you try to really understand these terms and and how they're using these terms so and it's changed so that you know the the way that john money was using um, gender identity as something that could be created. And so he tried, you know, with the Reimer case, he tried to assign a sex to a child and then try to help that child shape a gender identity that fits the assignment. Um, was that, you know, was that experiment and it failed miserably. But, the, but when they wrote about gender identity in the context of gender dysphoria, it had more to do with because of the, because of the gender dysphoria, so that in, that sense of incongruence. So that's how I'm using the term gender dysphoria, and I'm not using mm -hmm. it the way the trans activists use it, you know, as just, you know, my yeah, I, feelings I, about transphobia, but, but at, you know, the actual <laughs> experience of that thing that causes us to feel incongruent. When, for a lot of us, when we have that early childhood onset gender dysphoria, we begin to construct a sense of self around the dysphoria rather than around our biological sex. And it sounds like you, for whatever reason, you've, you've maintained a sense of self still grounded in your biological sex. You haven't completely created um, a gender identity around the gender dysphoria. If you, if you kind of catch my drift, like some people created, there's sort of no limits on how a person constructs their inner sense of self. Right. And I think that's where we're running into some problems with trans activism is they think I can just construct whatever inner sense of self I want without any limits and the world is going to adapt to me. And there's I no mean, limits. I mean, a, that, that sense of self can get as bizarre as a person wants because there's not, there's no confined, like there's no framework to keep it grounded in reality and to keep us grounded to our biological sex. I mean, I, I have to grant them that as a thought experiment, it's certainly interesting, but in practicality, it, it doesn't have any any hope of practical application. And one of the things that I really see this intense, you know, intense dichotomy between what is realistic for transition and what is not realistic is around the conversation with regard to suicidality. Um, it, I'm hoping that I'm going to make sense, but I'm just going to start talking and hopefully you can follow my drift. Um, 
So because I have that history of self-harm, um, non-suicidal self-injury as it's clinically referred to, um, I, I struggled with suicidal thoughts from the time I was 12. 12 years old, I remember thinking that if I couldn't figure out how to live with the body that I had, I needed to take my own life. And I actually did end up uh, attempting suicide at 22. So three years ago today, uh, I actually attempted. And that suicide attempt is what um, led to my social transition. I attempted and survived and then got up the next morning and decided I'm, I'm done. I need to socially transition to live my life because I don't ever want to go back to that particular experience. And when I talk to people about their transitions, about their desire to transition, um, about why they want to transition, they always open it with, well, if I don't transition, I'm going to kill myself. And I find that really, really dangerous and really, really quite offensive, actually because suicidality as, a, as an experience um, and as a concept, it's entirely separate from gender dysphoria. We know this by looking at the relevant literature. And we know from talking to gender dysphoric people across you know, a couple decades, you ask them if they're suicidal and they'll tell you no. And then if they tell you yes, then they're not a good candidate for, for medical transition. And it's, it's unrealistic to expect transition of any kind to mitigate or lessen or clear feelings of suicidality or, or you know, attempts of suicide. And I, I really started digging into the data around, you know, this, this idea that 41% of trans people um, attempt suicide. And, and I, I think we're having two different conversations um, when we talk about the risk posed to transsexuals who can't transition or you know don't want to transition etc for someone who chooses not to transition but is able to to say if i don't if i don't transition in some way i'll kill myself and then for somebody like me to say well actually i have attempted and this is this is how transition has positively affected my life that's one is based in reality the reality of an experience, the reality of living day to day with something and learning how to deal with it. And the other is based in the idea that if I don't do X, Y, or Z, then, you know, said thing will occur. I, I just think it's, it's very, very dangerous for us to assume that if we don't hand teenagers hormones or give them surgeries, that they're going to commit suicide. Uh, it, statistically, it's just not... There's really no evidence to, to back it up. I mean, teenagers are already at risk for suicidality, but not in terms of gender dysphoria. If you look at populations of adolescents with gender dysphoria, and you look at their suicidality, the numbers really are not there. And I, I think until we can really be honest about our conditions and be honest about the reality of our experiences without resorting to the emotional manipulation that is threats of suicide, we, we can't really have a conversation around trans. We can try. I mean, this interview is certainly a start, but it's just, it's just completely, completely screwed up and, and really frustrates me because when I say to people, oh, 
I transitioned because I almost died. Like they, they look at me like, oh, you're just saying that. You're saying that to be dramatic. You're saying that to, to validate your own transition. And it's like, no, you don't understand. I really did almost die. And I would not be here had I not decided to socially transition. And I still live with suicidal thoughts despite my transition. And I don't think that transition is a cure-all. And it, it's just, there's so much to this particular experience. And one of the things that I really want to hammer home to both of you is that transsexualism, transsexualism is not something you can identify into. Gender dysphoria is not something you can identify into. And there's this narrative that I've begun to see among young people that you can just identify into gender dysphoria. And you really can't. <laughs> but I'm gonna step off my soapbox. I hope that made sense. I'm rambling, but I think I'm rambling because I, I, I see so much that just doesn't make sense to me. And I'm hoping that you got something out of that. Yeah. The social justice movement today does place so much emphasis on identity. And you know, you're right that I don't think people can identify into, or I mean, they, obviously they can because they have been identifying into trans, but they, right. <laughs> you shouldn't be identifying into a, a condition. But I, I'm seeing that even on um, intersex forums that people are, are on, some of them saying quite blatantly, like just you know, openly saying, well, can I identify as intersex? Uh, and the intersex community starting to push back saying, well, no, this is a medical condition. You can't just identify into a medical condition, but it's but, happening more and more like people who have different, different conditions and saying, Hey, can I call myself intersex because I have this condition and people are saying, well, no, that's, that's not actually an intersex condition. Um, and people saying, Oh, but I want a community. It's like, well, awesome. Like you can be a decent person and we can be friends, but you're still not intersex. <laughs> right. And it's, it's, isn't it interesting that, you know, so many, so many people are identifying into various communities, but nobody really identifies into the, into the disabled community in the same way. Like autism is one that is really, I'm going to say this and it's going to sound terrible, but it's true. Autism is one where you see people identifying into having autism without being properly diagnosed. Nobody's identifying into having cerebral palsy. Nobody's identifying into having spina bifida. Why is that? Why is that? And I really sat back and thought about it for a while and I figured out, oh, it's because the particular thing that you're identifying into, not only does it have social currency, it's palatable. It's interesting. It makes you interesting. And conditions, medical conditions like mine, don't make you interesting. They don't have social currency. When you're out as a disabled person trying to be an adult, for example, trying to date, nobody, nobody wants you. Like it's this thing in your head, and it really, it really messes with you for a long time. You think that nobody wants you because you have a medical condition, and you have to like get over that. And I've never seen anybody identify into it. I've seen people with psychological conditions have delusions that they should have been born disabled. That's as close as I've, as I've come. I've never seen anybody identify into disability like mine, for example, in a social way. And I find that really, really interesting. And 
it just proves to me that this is such a such a social thing like such a such a thing that is meant to be experienced by other people and i think for for me for you for you aaron um <laughs> our dysphoria is not meant to be experienced by other people it's a very internal private personal emotional spiritual I say spiritual because I'm religious, but it's a very personal thing. And I think it's disrespectful to expect the rest of the world to like buy into the idea that we have dysphoria. And what young people are asking clinicians to do essentially is to buy into the idea that they just have dysphoria. They're not sitting there and thinking about it in the way that I've thought about it because all they have to do is walk down to like Planned Parenthood. And believe me, I've thought about it. I really have thought about it. There have been some really dark nights where I think to myself, gosh, if I wanted to, I could get hormones like that. I could go see a clinician and get a surgery letter like that. All I have to do is say the words I identify as. That's all I have to do. And I would be able to medically transition. But, but when I get to that point, what's going to happen to me? And I one of the reasons that I really entered into this fight is because I recognized um, not only is there no research into a transition like mine, but if something were to happen to me, the, the wider trans activist community wouldn't care. You know, they, they like me because I am the disabled trans guy and I fit all these minority boxes, but then I open my mouth or I interact with them and they don't like what I have to say. They don't value my ideas. And when I talk about my medical condition that affects me every day, all the surgeries that I had, all the very close calls that I've had, even with the great medical care that I get, they just turn away from me. They turn their noses up at me. And I realized like the experience that I've had of being medicalized as a child, particularly, is really, really valuable. I didn't think it was at first because I figured that, you know, my friends were medicalized as children and they're not out here writing blog posts about it. Um, and then I thought to myself, well, they also don't have gender dysphoria. And to, to be somebody with gender dysphoria who's considering medicalizing and you're a young kid and your brain hasn't fully developed and you're trying to figure out the rest of your life. I have lived now with this medical condition for 25 years and I am on medication for the rest of my life. I will need surgeries for the rest of my life. It is not something that my parents entered into lightly. I mean, it was, it was a situation where I couldn't gain weight. I couldn't feel when I had to go to the bathroom. I was not thriving as a little girl. And they had to make this decision for me. I was four years old and they put a, a pump in my abdomen that dispenses the medication that keeps me alive. And, um, even now as an adult taking over that medical care, I had my pump replaced a couple months ago and it's, it's routine, you know, and I'm sitting in the hospital bed thinking to myself, I'm really happy that I have this medication, but I wish that I'd been able to choose. I wish that I had been able to choose for myself. And so when I started to think about what do I have to give, it was this sense of, not only are 
children being rushed into med medicalization that they can't consent to and don't understand the ramifications of, but to be on the other side with a medical condition that requires lifelong medical care and to be able to say to those young people, like, you're going to have to do this for the rest of your life and it's not fun. And if you can avoid it, please do. That's a, I, I figured that I had nothing to lose by saying what I really felt, which was, if you have a way to manage your dysphoria without medically transitioning, by all means do it, because we really don't understand how to treat dysphoria medically, safely, effectively. What we're doing now um, to, to children and adults is effectively human experimentation. I mean, I, I have started to write a, a piece more about it. I'm going to release it at some point. I don't know when. But I, I went and I looked at the, the Nuremberg Code, which talks internationally about what is considered human experimentation. And uh, I read the tenets of that code and medical transition as it currently exists violates all 10 articles of the Nuremberg Code on human ethics. And I, I hear this, um, this clash of ideas from, from one side who thinks this is an ethical problem and one side who thinks that this is a moral problem. And the problem is that it's both moral and ethical. Moral meaning an individual, individual you know, sense of meaning, individual standard, and ethical meaning the standards defined by a community. Your moral standard may be not the same as your ethical standard, the standard that is around you. And I think that if we're going to be allowing people to transition, we need to be doing it safely. We need to be thinking about the, the ramifications of lifelong medical care. We need to be doing studies. We need to be talking to people about their mental health because dysphoria is incredibly psychologically stressful. And being a human being is hard enough. And you want to you wanna throw in synthetic hormones and surgeries and, and all that other stuff and, and not think about it. I mean, I, I look at detransitioners specifically. And it's really hard for me because I can't imagine ever detransitioning. I mean, I, I don't have any medical experience, obviously, to, to speak of. But even if you gave me the option tomorrow to go back to living as a woman, I couldn't take it. That wouldn't be something that I would be able to do. And so to imagine, gosh, you go through all this medical stuff and you realize you've made a mistake. That's a hell of a mistake to make. Like, and we're allowing children to do this. We're allow we're we're saying to children, medically, you can do this, you can, you can handle this. And my body has been under stress my whole life. You know, I have something called premature aging, which Physically, basically just means that even though I'm 25, my body is more like that of a 45 year old, you know, um, it ages at, you know, roughly twice the rate of my numerical age. I've got arthritis in my shoulders, arthritis in my knees, you know, um, I have to be really, really careful about my diet, really careful about my exercise and, and having this disability and managing it medically is a full-time job. And I recognized early on when I was reading stories from trans activists, stories from young trans kids, I say trans kids to mean children that have transitioned. Um, I, I, I saw nobody was saying to them, so are you prepared to take on a life of medicalization? Their parents weren't saying it to them. 
their doctors weren't saying it to them. Even people that were well-meaning just stopped at, well, you'll be a lifelong medical patient. And as a lifelong medical patient, um, th there's more to it than just the medicalization. I, I think that we, in our quest to protect young people, we need to be really careful about how we approach the concept of lifelong medicalization. Because on the one hand, uh, nobody should have to be a lifelong medical patient if they do not have to be. You know, I, I would never want anybody to do that. It's horrible. But on the other, we have medical technology that is advancing at a rate that I can't even imagine. And okay, so some people want to medicalize a minority of the population, let's say, since, since transsexuals are a minority of the population. We have to decide as a society whether that's something we want to take on. We have to decide how we want to do it and how we want to study it and how we want to take care of those people. Because the thing that I've learned throughout all of this is that gender dysphoria, being a transsexual, it's a human experience. It's an unusual experience, but it's a human experience. And there's always a human element. And one of the reasons that I am so committed to keeping my, my sense of self, my roots, as you mentioned, Aaron, is that um, my, my older brother ended up dying in a, in a car crash at 21 years old. And so my family as I knew it, my sense of self as I knew myself then completely evaporated. And I was left with a blank slate in a way that a lot of people really don't get the chance to do. And this idea that transition is a blank slate to me doesn't make sense because you come into transition with all these things about you, you know, your interests, how you like to dress, you know, how, what you want to do as a career, et cetera. And people expect that to just kind of magically evaporate. And it's like, no, you bring things into transition. You carry them with you over into the life that you live as a transsexual. And I think that we're not, we're not honoring where people come from first. We're expecting them to move in a new direction and not honoring where they started. And I, I think that's inhumane. And the medical care that we receive is inhumane. And why should I have to subject myself to inhumane medical care to be considered legitimate? And it's a question that nobody has ever asked. You know, no, no transsexual that I know of has ever asked. We're just sort of expected to sit back and deal with it. And for me, I, why should I have to deal with it? Why should anybody have to deal with it? Why are we not standing up and saying no? Like, no, do better, study better, research better, ask better questions, you know, create better mental health care so that we don't have a, a rash of suicides at the seven to 10 year mark after transition because you're a human being. And shouldn't the goal be a, a happy, healthy, fulfilling human life? I, I don't know. I hope yeah, that made and, sense. Yeah, and the, and the medical burden I think is is different on paper than it is in reality too. I mean, mm -hmm. like before I had surgeries, I mean, I did Google online and, and quit 
quite a bit. And I thought that I was pretty well informed. And, you know, when the, when they show surgery results online and they say, okay, this is a one stage, you know, surgery, or this is a, a two stage surgery. And, and so you think, so you think, okay, well, I can handle that. I mean, it'd be two surgeries and then it's done. But the reality is that um, with all the complications, most people I know, because um, complications, especially for the genital surgeries, are I think to be expected. Um, the the rates are so high, mm-hmm. and um, I mean, of the ones that that I know that went um, down to the states to have surgery and came back, roughly you know like eighty percent of them um, came back with complications, which means more surgeries, and then and then they get infections, and then they have to go back for surgery to deal with the infection, and so it ends up being multiple surgeries over time that you weren't counting on. Mm-hmm. And that's exhausting and it's time off work. If you're working, it's loss of income. If you're working, it's, and it, and it can feel like it, like it never ends. And some of the complications um, that of that some of the people that I know that are experiencing that will be lifelong, like the kinds of problems they're having with scar tissue and stuff. Mm -hmm. There's nothing they can do about that. So um, I feel like that's not the information that people are, are often getting when they're making these decisions. They're just going off of what is on the surgeon's website, but the surgeons are going to present their best work on their website. They're not going to, you know, show their, the, the range of results. They're only going to pick, you know, what they think are the, are the best, most successful handful of surgeries and minimize, um, you know, reporting on, on complication rates. Yeah. I, um, my parents sat me down. I would have been about nine years old. And I was due to have a surgery, routine surgery, to help me lengthen my my walking pattern, my gait. Because when you're young, before you hit puberty, they want to do as many surgeries on you as possible uh, because your body is young and strong and your puberty hasn't altered your height or your weight yet. So it's a, it's a mad rush to get you on the operating table, operated on within a specific window of time. Um, very similar to the the medical procedures that transitioning children undergo where it's a it's a mad rush it's the same same concept but uh my parents sat me down at around nine years old and said with the pump we made the decision for you because you were not old enough to understand what was happening to you and now you are and it's your body and if you tell us you don't want this surgery we're not going to sign the consent form we're going to let you decide and i thought about it and I trusted my parents because what nine-year-old doesn't trust their parents, you know? And I said, okay, mom and dad, I trust you. I trust my doctor. Let's do this. And in the course of recovery, uh, my, my legs were put in something called uh, like compressors, knee, knee immobilizers to keep them straight so that I could heal. And my cerebral palsy results in, you know, really intense leg spasms. So I can't, I can't stand for long periods of time. I can't keep my legs straight for long periods of time. I have to bend my legs to get some relief because it's painful. And over the course of the time spent in these immobilizing wraps, um, wounds emerged on both sides of my knees down to the bone. And my doctor who had been practicing medicine for 30 years, looked at them and said, I've never seen anything like this in my tenure of practicing medicine. And he basically said, there's nothing that we can do for you. Just go home, like have a bath and wait for the scabs to fall off 
and start, you know, rehabilitation therapy as you were supposed to. And um, it took me a very long time to really understand that that particular experience that I had as a young kid of recognizing, oh, I made this choice and I have to live with it. And my body is messed up forever now because of that. When you talk about the medical burden being different in reality than it is on paper, on paper, it was supposed to go well. On paper, I had some of the best physicians in the world. You know, On paper, I was really well taken care of. In reality, it, it didn't go that way. And I've really come to understand as I've aged that your body is only meant to handle so much. And uh, if we're really gonna be medicalizing people, we need to, we need to tell them that you get one body and one life and you need to be very careful with it because we know that this is the thing that I can't get over. We know that we can't change sex. We've been trying to do it for what? Since the sixties, the seventies, medically speaking, we know that it's not possible and yet we're still attempting it. You know, it's, it's a noble goal. I have to be honest, it's a noble goal to want to relieve human suffering. But is it noble to lie to people about how we relieve their suffering and, and lie to them about what they can expect, and leave them with complications, and leave them regretting or leave them suicidal afterwards? No, it's not noble at all. It's horrible. And it, it really, um, it really bothers me that we've allowed children to, it, it's, it's one thing for an adult to decide, you know what, I want to try and change my sex because adults can make adult decisions. But children, like I was a child, we can't make adult decisions. You know, I, I, I remember being a little kid and, and realizing, oh my gosh, not only do I have to be a, an average little kid, but I have to sit in my doctor's office, sit in my surgeon's office, and be as mature as I can be for a little kid. And I have to be happy about what they're doing to me. And I have to be, et cetera, et cetera, you know, because my parents can't handle the stress of an unhappy child who's being medicalized. You know, it, it's, it's a burden. It's a psychological and emotional and, and physical burden that we're placing on children. It's one thing to place it on adults who've thought about it, who've had therapy, who've been screened, who are aware of the risks that they're walking into. It's another thing entirely to place that burden on a child and then say to that child, okay, we've done all the medical things. Now you go be an adult. I, I in so many ways, you know, I am that kid. I was medicalized without my consent, you know, legally speaking. And I've grown up into an adult that can make my own medical decisions, but I still have to live with the consequences of those medical decisions that were made for me. And I, I see so many parallels in the, in the gender dysphoric experience that are really troubling, really troubling. It's a very good point. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Jamie, for being on today and talking with us about all this. To, yeah, Thank give you. a really Thank powerful so perspective. Much. Yeah, it's been a great conversation.
Thank and, you so much uh, for having me. Obviously, everybody, everybody listening is aware of how brilliant and articulate uh, <laughs> you are. So everybody go and check out uh, his Substack as well. A brilliant, brilliant writer. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.